0: Today we are continuing in our series, The Gospel Transformed Life, a look at 1 John. And we are drawing to a conclusion in that series. Um, In fact, there's only one more message after today in this series. So today's message is entitled, The Water and the Blood. So next week we'll conclude this series. And then the following week, the 31st, we're going to have a guest speaker with us, uh, Pastor Mike Mazie from Renovation Church in North Syracuse. And Renovation Church is a part of the same church planning network that we are part of, Acts 29. And then in August, we will begin a second edition of the series that we did last year called The God Who. I'm so excited about that. But um, today is a special day. Today we are celebrating water baptisms uh, at the Golems' house, and uh, all of you are welcome to attend. And if anybody is interested in being water baptized, um, either come talk to one of us uh, before The service is over, or um, just show up, and we'll we'll take you. Uh, But yeah, I I I love water baptisms. I think this has become one of the highlights of my summer, and today is extra special as Olive has decided to be baptized. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. So I've been asking her, you know, throughout the last couple weeks, you know, what it means to her, and just to kind of see if it was a I just want to jump in the water type of thing. But, you know, she she really wants to do it, and she's been able to communicate what it means to her. And so we're excited and taking her confession. And, um, you know, honestly, sometimes I think the the way that kids explain it is sometimes a lot better than the way adults explain it. You know, Jesus died for my sins. Okay. (laughs) And she wants to, you know, show that to everyone. So excited about that. But um, I've been told to tell everybody to bring a chair if you have one. And as well, everybody should bring potato salad. Is that, that what I was supposed to say, Steve? No potato salad, because... No, no, just, just not. Ten, ten. not ten. potato salads. Just one, <laughs> one potato salad. So who, who's making potato salad? No. Um, just find Steve or myself, and uh, maybe we can coordinate uh, what what will be there and, and all that good stuff. I feel like now that I've said that, nobody will bring potato salad. So, you know, that's, that's always what you run into there. So... The important thing is bring, bring chairs. Uh, if you do bring the kiddos with you, they're welcome to swim. Uh, bring towels, change of clothes, all that good stuff. So, Okay. Very good. Alrighty. So we'll see everybody who's available at 2 o'clock at, at the Golems. And if you need their address, just go yell at Steve. I mean, ask Steve. Uh, so yeah, today we're celebrating with baptisms, but we're also celebrating with the Lord's table. Um, and as you can see, we've we've got uh, the elements out. And I wish, I wish that I was this intelligent, but um, I, I did not plan this in advance. But today's message is called "The Water and the Blood," and we're participating in both baptism and the Lord's Table today. Um, and as we go through this message, you'll see how these two things connect to the message. Um, but I. I I just have to chalk it up to god 's sovereignty because i 'm not i wasn 't smart enough to plan this out in advance that this would all happen on the same day but I, I love these these two ordinances that we celebrate together they 're celebrations of what Jesus has done, partaking in the lord 's table, worshipping together in that way. Um, baptisms as well as celebrations of what the gospel is all about. And so today's a a wonderful day to celebrate the Lord. Every day is a good day to celebrate the Lord. Um, But we do these things to show what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is. So let's dive in. Um, As we dive in, I want to remind us of some of the circumstances surrounding the writing of 1 John. There were these false teachers Um, At the time that John wrote this and uh, they were spreading a teaching that would later become known as docetism Docetism taught that Christ only seemed to have a human body a few weeks ago I mentioned some different ways that docetism taught this uh, About the person of Christ some taught that there was no human body at all That it was kind of like a phantasm or an illusion of a physical body And then there were others who taught that he did have some sort of body, but it wasn't Uh, Physical like ours is physical. It was some different, unique, physical body. Um, There was also this guy that we've mentioned a couple times now uh, named Sorinthus. And and he taught uh, docetism, and he was also an early influencer of the Gnostic movement. He taught that Jesus and the Christ were two separate entities. Jesus, a man, the wiser than most, and the Christ, the divine spirit. And he taught that the Christ descended upon the man Jesus and departed him just before the cross when Jesus was arrested in the garden. This was and is a heretical false teaching, denies the scriptures and the testimony of God, as we're going to see this morning. And some modern uh, representations of docetism, um, I just kind of quickly looked into that to see, like, is this something that's still around today? Like, is this something that went out? In the early church. And there still are um, some false teachings that exist today that that incorporate this. Um, In fact, it actually is a part of Islam and their teachings on who uh, they believe Christ was. And um, as well, um, is it like the Church of Science or something like that? Uh, One of those uh, more offshoot type cultic practices. But these teachings, the reason why it's so important for us to understand why they're wrong is because these teachings deny the realities of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a perfect life of obedience to God, that he was crucified and physically died, that he was buried and rose again physically. If these things are not true, as the scriptures teach, then we do not have salvation. And so it's very important that we understand these things. And so in the passage today that we're looking at, we're going to be presented with the testimony of God through three witnesses. That Jesus is the Son of God, incarnated in human flesh, and the Savior of those who believe. And so we'll unpack two main ideas from the passage, the three witnesses and the witness of eternal life. So let's read our passage this morning. 1 John 5, 6 through 12. Wonderful ability to be together this morning celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son for the forgiveness of our sins and the life that we now have in Christ. Lord, we thank you uh, that we're able to celebrate through water baptisms, through the Lord's table, that we're able to uh, participate in worship together, singing together, hearing the word together, um, just fellowshipping with one another, encouraging one another. I ask that you would open our hearts to receive your word this morning, that we would grow, that we would be edified and built up in Jesus. We just thank you again, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So the three witnesses. So simply put, the charge that Serentis put forth, uh, to sum it all up, is that Christ is not who he said he was. That Jesus was not exactly how he claimed he was. He was something altogether different. The arguments of false teachers... Uh, though are often complex, and they present challenges to believers as we try to wrestle with them and uh, perhaps even argue with them. Uh, And this was the case for the church that John was writing to. uh, This group of false teachers and the followers that followed after them presented certainly a major challenge uh, to the church there. And they were shaken by those who had departed. If you remember, we've talked about this. A good bit, there was a group that departed the church. And so those who remained have been shaken by this. They've been challenged by the departure of uh, people who they once cared for greatly and probably still did care for greatly. And these were people who believed the lies of Serinthus rather than the gospel. And so John has written to show that those who departed were not of them. John has been providing evidence to those who remained to give confidence And assurance of their salvation, despite what others had said. And in doing so, he lifts the burden that many were under. A burden of doubt, a burden of confusion, a burden of despair. As John nears the end of his letter, his aim is for the believer in Christ to have confidence of eternal life. And he will make this case by countering the arguments of these false teachers And he's going to show us that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And he will do this by the means of some powerful witnesses. And these are the three witnesses that John calls to the stand, so to speak, in verses 6 through 8. So let's read those three verses again. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. In verse 6, we see the water and the blood. These are the first two witnesses that John calls upon. Now, some have taken the water to refer to the physical birth of Jesus or the water that flowed from his side when he was crucified. Others have taken it to mean the water of believer's baptism and the blood a reference to the Lord's table. I think what John has in mind as he's writing this uh, with the word water here uh, is the witness of Jesus' baptism. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, I do believe that there is a tie-in uh, to the ordinances that we'll be partaking in today, water baptism or believer's baptism and the Lord's table. Uh, but I don't believe that's specifically what John has in sight when he writes uh, that this is he who came by water and blood. I believe that it's more of an indirect reference, but we'll get to that in a moment. I believe that John is showing us uh, these, these two instances in Jesus' lives to refute uh, the teachings of men like Cerinthus. In the verse, uh, number six, it says that this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. And this is calling our attention back to the preceding verses. Back in verse one, John wrote, first uh, John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. I believe that this letter was written to refute these false teachings. I think I've said that enough at this point. Uh, but this verse specifically is dealing with the false teaching that the divine spirit, as Corinthus called it, descended upon the man, Jesus, at baptism and departed him at his arrest. The Apostle John is showing through the testimony of these three witnesses that Jesus is the Christ, not two separate entities. He was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, before his baptism and through his death. He came as the Christ and remains the Christ, and he is not a separate entity. Let's look at the baptism of Jesus. Um, it's found in most of the accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but uh, we're going to look at Matthew three, thirteen through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, So here we have the commencement of Jesus' earthly ministry, and we have a divine witness to his identity. The triune God is revealed all in this one occasion. Listen to the words of the Father as the Holy Spirit descends and rests on God the Son. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This declaration of the Father uh, resonates of two Old Testament passages. Psalm 2-7 says, I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So in Psalm 2, Jesus was seen as the king. And we did a a message on that. Mike shared on that psalm. He's God's chosen king. And in Isaiah 42, we have the first of the servant songs. Jesus is seen as the suffering servant. And so, this is the witness of the Father that Jesus is the chosen king, that he would be king, but he would be a suffering king. He would be a servant king. In baptism, Jesus identifies with the sinners that he comes to save. John the Baptist's baptism was that of repentance, but Jesus had no sin, he had no need to be baptized. However, there are several reasons why Jesus was baptized. One was the public announcement that John gave when he said, Behold the Lamb. And also, John is the one Isaiah spoke of when he said, of a voice crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way. Another reason is that John the Baptist was of the tribe of Levi, a direct descendant of Aaron, in the priestly line. And part of the priestly role was to prepare the sacrifice Jesus was the Lamb of God. And so this was part of that priestly role to prepare the sacrifice. And the baptism of Jesus symbolized how believers are baptized into the righteousness of Christ, dying with him and rising free from sin and able to walk in the newness of life. And perhaps the primary reason for this was the demonstration of the glory of the triune God. This shows us that salvation is the work of all the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the whole Godhead. This is a witness that Jesus is who he said that he is. The next witness we have is that of the blood. And this is the witness of the crucifixion of Jesus. The Apostle John continues in verse 6 saying, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Going Again, showing here that the argument to Serenthus and his followers is not just that the... That Jesus was somehow Christ in his baptism, but all through his life. Not the water only, but also the blood. Jesus is the Christ. He didn't become the Christ. Now, as obscure as it seems to make this argument uh, for us today, it does have deadly consequences. If the Apostle John is not right in his argument here, then the death of Jesus does not provide salvation, and we do not have eternal life. If when he died, Jesus was simply a good man, a wise man, then there is no eternal life. There is no forgiveness of sins. He had to be 100% God and 100% man. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who entered this world in time and space to die as a substitute for our sin. He is the propitiation for our sin, and he has made full atonement for our sin, as we shared a couple weeks ago. During the crucifixion, we have other testimonies uh, occurring, giving evidence that Jesus was the Son of God. There was darkness across the land from noon to 3 p.m. The curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom. The ground shook. And of course, after he was buried for three days, he rose again. The third witness that the author calls upon is the Holy Spirit himself and he writes and the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. The Holy Spirit is a constant continuous testimony that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And the spirit testifies of this because he is the truth. Jesus said the same thing about the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. In John 15:26 he writes or he said this, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about me so the holy spirit doesn't just tell the truth he is the truth and so john is telling his readers including us today that the spirit testifies he bears witness because he is the truth you know humanity is seeking for happiness life and truth yet because of the fall humanity is ruled by sin and so humanity attempts to fill that, that whole with other things. The truth that fallen humanity pursues is not the truth. It's the epitome of pride. My truth. John is saying God is truth. And you can't have truth without God. John sixteen thirteen. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And you can't even believe the truth without the Holy Spirit. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians twelve three, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So we see in all this a bit more of the work of the Holy Spirit. Nate shared a few weeks ago that one of the, the roles of the Holy Spirit, one of his duties in our lives is to fill our hearts with the over-abundant, overflowing love of God. He pours the love of God into our hearts. Now we see that the Spirit gives witness to Christ, leading the believer into truth, giving the ability to the believer to see the truth of who Christ is and to believe the gospel and to understand it. It is the Spirit who works regeneration, taking your old sinful hearts of stone, and giving you a heart of flesh, making your heart alive. It is the Holy Spirit who is the one who repents you. Without the Holy Spirit, you can't even repent. You can't believe. And so the Holy Spirit repents us, causing the believer to agree with God and side against your sin. The Spirit bears witness that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ. Verses 7 and 8 say, "For There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So the threefold witness of the Spirit, the water and the blood, agree. And the order here is important because it is the Spirit that testifies to us through the water and the blood. This threefold witness is important. Under the Old Covenant, a legal judgment, especially judgment on any wrongdoing, could only happen, it could only be established if there was evidence by two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong and in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And Paul continued this principle when he said in 2 Corinthians 13.1, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so there are three witnesses testifying that Jesus is the Christ. Not that the Christ descended, but that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus wasn't simply a good teacher. He wasn't simply a moral man. He is the Son of God from eternity past and on. The witnesses testify of Christ. But what is the purpose for this testimony? Why these witnesses? Well, it's to solidify our assurance and confidence in Christ and give evidence of eternal life. And so we call some additional witnesses to the stand. In verses 9 through 12, we see the witness of eternal life. And we see the testimony of God. Beginning in verse 9, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, That he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. In verse 9, John says that the testimony of God is greater than the testimony of men. Now, this is not to say that the testimony of men did not exist. There is plenty of that in the New Testament as well. John 5, 31 through 37, John speaking, or Jesus speaking of John the Baptist says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you, It's also the works that Jesus was doing, the miracles that he was doing, his teaching with authority like no other teacher had taught before. That was bearing witness to who he was. There's a passage that I share often here at Grace Life. 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe by now you can quote it, I don't know. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all. As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So over 500 people testified of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, having seen the risen Savior. And the epistle of 1 John also serves as a testimony of a man to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. But because it appears that this testimony was not enough, <coughs> excuse me, for Cerinthus and his followers, those who had departed the church, those who were claiming to have some kind of special enlightened knowledge, John appeals to the testimony of God himself, which is greater than the testimony of men. We've seen in verses 6 through 8, the spirit, the water, and the blood, that these three are the testimony of God as well, and they are in agreement. But in verses 9 through 12, John goes further. He is showing the reader that whoever believes in Jesus Christ has this testimony of God within. And the testimony that uh, God has given is eternal life, and this life is his son, Jesus Christ. This testimony of God is indeed greater because there is nothing truer in its source or significance than what comes from god his testimony is trustworthy when all other tr- uh, Testimonies are false. His is trustworthy In verse 10 john makes a powerful statement Whoever believes in the son of god has the testimony in himself So to believe in christ is to believe the testimony of the father the other side of that is that for the one who doesn't believe in Christ, the one who rejects Christ, is calling God a liar. And as John said in the beginning portions of this letter, the truth is not in him. The Christian's belief in Jesus Christ is not just empty words. It is made real in the heart of the believer by the testimony of God. Sometimes the struggle then of assurance is a matter of the mind coming into alignment with the new heart that you've been given. The new person, the new creation that God has made you to be is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the flesh that remains battles against the Spirit. Our mind is what drifts, thinking things of ourselves and of God that just simply aren't true. And the weapons of the enemy and the clinging desires of the flesh are strongholds that affect our thinking and our belief. So believe the gospel. Believe that Christ forgives sins, that your old man, the old you, is buried. Believe what is truer about you now. That you are new. That you have a new heart. This is what water baptism symbolizes. The old man has been buried. And you've risen in newness of life. You are a new creation. You have a new heart. And the Holy Spirit bears witness of this. God has given you an internal witness when he gave you the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.16 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Not that we will become children of God. Not that if we work really, 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 really hard, we will become children of God. We are children of God. So this is the personal presence of God in you, confirming the faith he has given you in his son. It is a hearty amen by the spirit of God to the word of Christ. You know, a lot of you know that um, I grew up in charismatic and Pentecostal um, movements and sometimes I just wish I could deposit some of that here because sometimes you just need a hearty amen. (laughs) Louis will give it to me in the second service, so don't worry. (laughs) But the Holy Spirit is that hearty amen in your heart that you have received the word of Christ, that you are indwelt with the Spirit, and that you have this eternal life. When you hear the truth of the gospel, and your heart burns within you. That is that confirmation. And when your brother or sister in Christ struggles to see this about themselves, come alongside, loving them, loving your brother or sister by coming underneath that burden of doubt or conflict or whatever it is that they're going through, and carry it with them. Come underneath that. Bear the weight of that with them, because the reality is We will at times doubt this. We will at times struggle to see and to hear this hearty amen. We will struggle to recognize that this is truer of us. And that is why we need one another. And so this is what I believe that John is doing throughout this letter. As he's writing to this church that is struggling, that is doubting, that is feeling the weight of all those who have left. Because that hurts. When all these people that you have lived life with for so long depart and start making accusations towards you, that hurts. John is coming underneath the burden that they, are, that they are feeling the weight of, and he is bearing it alongside of them. And sometimes bearing the burden alongside someone means you're carrying 100% of the burden just to give them some reprieve. There may be seasons where the branches seem a bit dry. Every winter we see this. The, the branches on the trees out there, they, they look a bit dead. But there's life inside. Believer, you are abiding in Christ, the source of life. He is abiding in you by the Holy Spirit who is within, bringing that life to bear fruit in keeping with his word. So just rest in the vine. Just rest in Him, rest in that life that He has given. And really, this is what I believe these verses are showing us. Verse 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so the life that is within, even when the evidence of it seems meager at times, is the eternal life of God. Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit inside of you. We cannot earn eternal life. It is a gift. And it's not just a gift to be experienced sometime in the future when we either pass or when he returns. We have this life already. Again, we live in the already and the not yet. So we have the eternal life inside and we await the full realization of it. When Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom on this earth. You don't just end with eternal life. Believer, you began with eternal life. The moment you believed. The eternal kingdom of heaven has been planted in you. Like a growing seed. And certainly as you uh, believe the gospel. As you grow as a believer. You will experience it in new and different ways. More ways as you as you grow and mature in Christ, as the love of God matures within you. And there will be the full realization of it one day when we uh, spend eternity with Jesus. But you have it now. In John fourteen six, Jesus said this of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is truth something to be grasped, something to gain? Is it something to transcend to like these other people believed, Serenthus and his followers? No. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he is true. He is the truth. And because it is true of Jesus, it is true of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. Our passage today has said that the Holy Spirit is the truth. And we see in John fourteen six that Jesus claimed to be the truth as well. So is it Jesus or is it the Holy Spirit who is the truth? Yes. Both. It is true of them. The witness of the Father and the witness of the Holy Spirit are all essentially the same thing. They're pointing us to the Son, to life. And so if you have the Son, you have life. Now, there's this story that I I know Derek has shared it a number of times. Others have shared it as well. Um... I'm going to share it this morning. I'm going to try to, like, do a summary version of it because it's pretty lengthy. But years ago, there was a very wealthy man who had devoted his life uh, to a passion of art collecting. And he had a very, very dear son. And they, they traveled together around the world, and they collected paintings such as Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, and others. And uh, so their family estate was just covered, adorned with all these wonderful, beautiful paintings that were um, worth, you know, millions. Well, this elderly man and his son um, filled their home with all these wonderful pieces of art. And after a while, the son uh, went off to war and he was killed in conflict. And so this young man died. Um, The way he died was he was rushing to save a fellow soldier who was a medic. And so distraught and lonely, the old man um, sat in his home as the Christmas holidays were coming up and he was filled with sadness and Um, one morning, um, says it was Christmas morning, Uh, there was a knock on the door. And so the old man opened the door, and there was a younger man. And he said to the old man, I was a friend of your son. I served with him uh, in the war, and I was the one that he actually rescued when he died. And can I come in, spend a few moments with you, have something to show you? And they began to talk, they began to tell uh, each other stories of the son and uh, the young man shared how he had saved him, rescued him. Um, and he said, I'm an artist, and I know that your son uh, loved fine art, and he always talked about your love of fine art. And so he had painted this painting, and he, he gave it to him as a gift, and it was a portrait of the son. Now, the world would never consider this to be a work of genius. It was just a portrait of a young man. Uh, but it featured the young man's face in striking detail. And so the father thanked the soldier and promised to hang the picture over the fireplace. It became his prized possession. And so as uh, spring came, uh, the old man took ill and he passed. And so uh, there was going to be an auction of all of these wonderful pieces of art, and the art world was in anticipation They wanted to get their hands on this collection. He had amazing pieces of art. And so these paintings would be sold, and according to the will of the old man, um, they would be auctioned off on Christmas Day, the day that he had received this greatest gift that he prized so much. The day soon arrived, and these collectors from all around the world gathered to bid on some of the world's most spectacular paintings, and the auctioneer began. Uh, But according to the will, the auction would begin with the painting of the man's son. So the auctioneer asked for an opening bid, and the room was silent. So he said, who will open the bidding with $100, he asked. And minutes passed, no one spoke. From the back of the room, someone yelled, who cares about that painting? Get to the good stuff. More voices echoed in agreement. And so the auctioneer replied, no, we have to sell this one first. So who will take the son? Someone in the back, a friend of the old man spoke, will you take $10 for the painting? That's all I have. I knew the boy, so I'd like to have it. I have $10. Will anyone go higher? called the auctioneer. After more silence, the auctioneer said, going once, going twice, sold. The gavel fell, cheers filled the room, and someone explained, exclaimed, now we can get on with it, get to those treasures. The auctioneer looked at the audience and announced that the auction was over. Stunned disbelief quieted the room. Someone spoke up and asked, what do you mean it's over? We didn't come here for a picture of some old guy's son. What about all of these paintings? There are millions of dollars of art here. I demand that you explain what's going on here. And the auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will of the Father, whoever takes the son gets it all. If you are a believer in Christ here this morning, you have it all. You have eternal life. You have the life of Christ within. You have the Spirit. You have the forgiveness of sins. You have joy, love, peace. You have the gifts of the Spirit. You have these things. You have them now. And yes, there's more to come when we arrive at eternity's shore. If you are not a believer, this life is available to you as well. All you must do is believe in the Son of God. That Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins. And all of this is yours. Jesus, the Son of God, took your debt of sin, and he paid it in full at the cross. He died in your place, and he rose again. So how do we apply all of this? Live in it. Live in this life. Live in this eternal life that God has given. And I think another way we can apply it this morning is through the ordinary means of grace. We've gathered. We've heard. We've sung. We're going to sing some more. I've witnessed, as people are sharing with one another, I've witnessed the love of God for one another this morning. And now we're going to partake in the Lord's table. This afternoon we're going to partake in water baptism. These ordinances are also part of the ordinary means of grace. They're very simple. They're very ordinary things. But it's in these wonderful things that God's grace is available to us. They picture the Lord's death and his burial and his resurrection. It symbolizes what has gone on inside of us. And so that's how it ties back to the water and the blood. By partaking in these things, we are testifying of the witnesses that God has given. We are saying to the world that we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. We have partaken of it. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And we have been buried with Christ, and we have been risen with him in newness of life. In being baptized, Jesus identified with the sinners he came to save In our water baptism, we show what occurred when we were baptized into Christ Jesus. We are united with Christ, and therefore we died with him and are raised with him. Romans 6, 3 and 4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so water baptism symbolizes the baptism that Paul is writing of. Going down into the water displays that publicly and being raised up from the water displays that we are now walking in this newness of life. And the Lord's table, what we're going to partake of right now, symbolizes the Lord's death until he returns. It is a reminder to us of his death, his burial and his resurrection and his soon return. We're anticipating His return when we partake of this. And so as we come to the table, let's rejoice. Let's celebrate. Certainly it's a somber thing to think of the death of our Savior, but it's a celebration that we're partaking in. It's joyful. We are partaking in this celebration of what Christ has done in the fact that He has given us His life. So let's do that this morning. Let's celebrate the goodness of our God, that He has confirmed His Son, that he bears witness in our hearts that we are now his children as well. And let us eagerly await his return. On a practical note, uh, you'll see that the elements look a little different this morning. We're switching from the prepackaged elements to cups and bread. Um, I think everybody's pretty happy about that. Um, there's also gluten-free crackers, if that serves you. Uh, so everybody... Uh, Come to either the table in the front or the back. uh, Grab what you need. Um, The gluten-free is in the smaller container there um, on each table. And take it back to your seat and we'll partake together as Nate and the worship team leads us in song as we celebrate Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony that you have given concerning your son. That he is your son. That he is the son of God. That he is the Christ. And this means that all the words of the gospel are true. That through his death, burial, and resurrection, we do have life. We do have forgiveness of sins. And so even at times when we don't feel like it, when we question and when we doubt, we can be reminded through the testimony of your son. We can be reminded through the testimony of your word, through the testimony of the spirit, through the testimony of our brothers and sisters in Christ, through the testimony of your table. That we are truly your children. And we thank you. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus precious name we pray. Amen.